One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The opinion line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Good morning, it's Dee here with you on the Opinion Line for Wednesday. Lots of things to talk about this morning. Are the government just making a total hames of everything? It kind of feels to me like we've had more mistakes and missteps and scandals in this government in the first few weeks than the last few had, you know, ever. And I'm, I'm not actually attributing that to any particular political party. It just seems like maybe unravelling a lot of the pandemic stuff that was brought in in such a rush is going to be messy, but it seems like the communication is all over the place um, this thing with the pandemic unemployment payment, we'll be talking about that shortly about when the travelling is going to lose your payment, about what you're now entitled to versus what you were entitled to before seems to have changed as well um, loads about that coming up later on the show but a bit closer to home there was some worrying news yesterday evening, uh, Gardaí are investigating a suspicious approach incident that occurred in Black Rock yesterday evening now Fiona Corcoran are Chief News Correspondent is on the line about this. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Deirdre. How are you? Not too bad, Fiona. Tell me what happened. Sorry, apologies. This wasn't yesterday. It was the day before yesterday. Um, it, this incident took place in Black Rock. Can you tell me a bit more about it? That's it. Um, yesterday evening, we got a statement from Gardaí and they confirmed that they were investigating what they called a suspicious approach incident that occurred at around 11 o'clock in the morning of Monday last at Jacobs Island in Black Rock. Now, we understand that an 11-year-old girl was playing in the front garden outside her home and when her mother came out, she saw a man that she didn't know standing talking to the girl. And when he saw the mother come out of the house, he took off. And the mother had, um, she she went after him and she took a photograph of him on her mobile phone. And she rang Gardaí and she sent them the picture of the man. And the girl, um, it's understood, told her mother that the man stopped to talk to her. And during the conversation, he asked her to go for a walk with him. And she declined and he continued talking to her until her mother came out. And... Um, Gardaí have confirmed that they did carry out a patrol of the area, uh, but there, nobody has been arrested to date. Now, an investigation is ongoing. Gardaí say they are treating this incident as very serious, and they're asking for people who maybe 
saw anything suspicious or saw this man in the area on Monday morning to contact them immediately. Now, mm-hmm. there has been a description released of the man. He's described as being tall um, and large. He's of broad build and he was wearing a T-shirt that had uh, quite a distinctive cartoon character on the front of it. And um, Gardy are asking people if they saw a man matching that description uh, to contact them to come forward. Now, because they have the photograph of this man, they believe that it will be quite easy to identify him. Um, but I suppose they're looking for every bit of information now at this stage as they can glean from the public. Okay, because the photograph, I gather, is circulating on social media, but yeah. the Gardaí are not officially circulating it. No, they haven't. Uh, no, I did see the photograph on social media last night. Um, as you say, it's been widely spread, particularly on Facebook. Um, but the Gardaí haven't uh, released a photograph of that man. Um, that's the description that we were given of him, that he was a, a tall, large man with this T-shirt, um, with this kind of cartoon character on the front of it. Okay. And I suppose like the message from Gardaí as well, um, I saw Chief Superintendent Barry McPoland spoke to the Sun newspaper yesterday evening, and they said that if anybody comes across anything like that, now they said that there isn't a need for the public to worry that this is not something that's um, widespread across the, the, the core society but they said that if anybody comes across an incident like this where they suspect that somebody is um, a bit dodgy to you know do what this woman did contact Gardaí and take a photograph because those photographs are very useful mm. for the Gardaí investigation And so, how, was, uh, how was the child afterwards? Um, I, I don't know I haven't been talking to the, the family but um, I I would understand. I would imagine that she would be quite shaken. Um, I'm not sure would she have understood the gravity of the situation, mm. but she had a sense to say no that she didn't want to go for the walk from him. So um, she, I, I'm sure the mother in particular is quite shaken. I mean, you know, you would imagine that your child is safe out in in the garden playing at eleven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, so it is. Uh, I can imagine that they're quite shook up about this. Yeah, that's a very frightening thing to happen. And fair play to mm-hmm. that lady for having the presence of mind to take the photograph. And know, if, yeah. if if the family are listening and they want to contact us, 0833969696 is the number if you want to um, give us any more details on that. Fiona, there was another, um, there was a guard operation yesterday in North Cork as well, something kind of unusual in relation to human trafficking. That's right. Um, Gardaí uh, carried out two uh, searches of pre- of premises in the Charleville and Mallow areas on Sunday afternoon. And this was on foot of an intelligence-led operation. Um, and they, when, when they went to these two search premises um, on foot of a warrant, they interviewed 24 adults who were in these two premises. And they also found three men who they suspect had been recently trafficked into Ireland. And they removed them from the premises. Now, those men are currently receiving assistance um, and there's efforts being made to try and identify them and find out what country they're from. And um, the investigation is ongoing. And now, Gardaí said yesterday that the... There was the Armed Support Unit, the Southern Region Dog Unit, and Gardaí from across North Cork Division. So it was quite a, a large operation. Mm. Um, now, they haven't... I did get a phone call yesterday evening to say that there was an arrest made. But when I contacted Gardaí, they said that no arrests have been made. So I'm not sure if there are uh, rumours circulating in the local area. Mm. But um, Gardaí again said to me this morning that there haven't been any arrests made with regards to this investigation, but it is ongoing. And again, if anybody has any information, 
that they think um, would help the Gardaí with their investigation than they're asked to contact Gardaí straight away. Okay. Do we have any idea what kind of premises they were? Because there are obviously um, particular industries that human trafficking is more prevalent in. Um, You know, some of that can be gender-based, obviously prostitution and Mm -hmm. the beauty industry tend to have quite a lot of trafficked people working in them, um, but more so women. Do we have any idea what kind of business premises they were? No, um, we think, like, these men, the guards' the statement yesterday said very little, and it said at the end of it that no further details are available in mm. relation to this investigation. Um, but I understand that these men were being used for employment purposes, so I suppose there would have been an employment where they maybe were receiving very little pay, if any pay at all, and uh, their conditions wouldn't have been up to what they should be here. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I, they are two business premises, I believe. Now, um, again, I did hear one um, person say to me that they believe that one of the places was a, a fast food operation, but mm. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, that's just, confirmed. again, uh, rumours that have been circulating in the area. But for now, the guards have released very little about the business premises other than to say that there were two premises in Charlesville and Mallow areas. Okay. And um, if anybody has any information that they can contact Gardaí. And I suppose with things like this, you, you are always going to have people talking, um, particularly in those areas. Mm. And, um, you know, in social media, there's commentary all over social media about it as well. But for now, this is what the Gardaí have told us. So um, they they have just said that it's just two premises in Charlottesville and Mallow and that efforts are being made now to try and, um, I suppose, get these men back home to where they came from. Okay. Fiona Corkin, thanks very much for that. Two very unusual stories over the last couple of days. So an attempt to lure a child on Monday in Blackrock, 11am on Monday, a child playing at the front for home and a man who is described as large, a tall, large man wearing a t-shirt with a cartoon character on it. Um, he's quite recognisable. There's a photo circulating on social media, but that isn't um, being circulated by the Gardaí. So we're obviously not going to be recirculating it, but but by the description and by the photograph, he's he's quite identifiable. Um, so no doubt they will be able to find him. Um, in relation to that human trafficking story, uh, we've spoken to experts before about the level of human trafficking going on in Ireland, and particularly in rural Ireland. Um, I think people aren't necessarily always, you know, it's one of those things you think of um, as a real city thing, but... Um, Particular industries, as I said, beauty, um, that's probably more so in, in uh, urban areas, um, the fast food industry, um, prostitution, obviously. Um, but if, if you suspect something in your area, um, if you suspected people working in, in, one of your local businesses or whatever may be trafficked um, it's something you should contact the guards about because they um, they need I suppose information on it. If you are aware of those cases in Mallow and Charleville and you have any more information 185 is the number to call on the show. We're going to be talking in a moment about this issue with the pandemic unemployment payment. There's, there's a couple of issues with it now but one of the issues that arose over the last couple of days was of social welfare inspectors stopping people at airports quizzing them and then removing their PUP if they were on it because they had travelled out of the country. Uh, one woman who has come forward was supposed to be travelling from Cork to Roscoff on the ferry on a family holiday didn't actually travel but her name was obviously on the passenger manifest and her payment was stopped even though she had never gone anywhere. When she queried why the payment was stopped they told her it was because she left the country. Um, I'll be speaking in a moment to a man who was 
stopped at the airport along with his family. They were on, on the way to his wife's home place for a, um, a kind of some kind of a family bereavement, I think. And um, they had a pretty interesting encounter with the social welfare inspectors. I think in this occasion the department may be bit off a bit more they can chew than they could chew because they didn't realise that the person they were talking to was an expert in social welfare law and knew that what they were doing didn't stand up legally. Um, there seems to be all sorts of confusion about the level of legality of this. The doll sat last night in order to change the nature of the pandemic unemployment payment um, and we will be talking about that a bit as well. So if you're on the payment and if you have any concerns and you're not sure where you stand, we'd be interested in hearing from you. 083 96 This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Text or WhatsApp now 083-396-9696 On Cork's 96FM Good morning and welcome to the programme Roman Shortall Good morning Deirdre, how are you? You've had a busy time over the last day or so Yeah um, Roman, I, uh, people yeah. will have heard you possibly on Liveline yesterday, but for those who didn't, um, we, they don't all listen to Liveline in Cork, is um, We said we'd get you on because you had a very interesting encounter at Dublin Airport a couple of weeks ago. T- tell me what happened. Yeah, um, basically uh, last month um, I was in Dublin Airport with my spouse and my wife and two uh, young children. Um, we had a flight reserva- reservation, a return flight, and we were traveling to Bacow Airport in Romania. Uh, my wife is Romanian. She's a naturalized Irish citizen as well. And we were traveling over for personal reasons, uh, basically to visit a terminally ill relative. Um, when we, we went through the normal security uh, checks where you... Uh, have your bag scanned, etc. And we got to the boarding gate, and we were waiting to uh, board the plane. Um, we noticed that there was two guardi and two social welfare inspectors were operating at checkpoints uh, in, just in front of the boarding gate, where uh, people would sit down. And they were stopping uh, each uh, adult passenger um, and requesting information. And as we approached, uh, a female uh, social welfare inspector asked me for identification on my TPS number. So I asked her to identify herself. Um, She showed me her airside pass. She didn't show me any uh, Department of Social Protection um, identification. Mm. Um, And I, I advised her then that in order to request my personal details, uh, or any documentation like that, that she had to have reasonable grounds to suspect that I was contravening social welfare legislation. And I asked her what her grounds uh, were, and she advised me that leaving the state was reasonable grounds. And bear in mind, at this stage, she had no idea who I was. Um, I'd said to her that was not a reasonable ground, and I refused to provide the information. And I also told her that my wife uh, wouldn't provide uh, information either. Uh, she said that was fine. Uh, proceeded to the boarding gate uh, to hand over my passport to the uh, airline staff and uh, my boarding pass. 
And as I approached the boarding gate, I noticed uh, two uh, uniformed guards approaching us. Um, now I don't, I can't remember if they were in full uniform or not, but they had uh, a blue guard with jackets on. Mm. Um, they were now standing in front of us and blocking our path. Uh, the male guard asked me for my passport for the purposes of a passport check. Those mm-hmm. were the words he used. Um, and at this stage, I presumed that he was an immigration officer um, and that he was exercising powers under the Immigration Act. So I asked him as well to identify himself. He showed me his guard of warrants card. Um, I then handed over my passport, folded uh, my spouse, um, then he started writing down our names and uh, dates of birth on uh, a form, uh, some sort of a form that he had. Um, and I said to him that I didn't consent to what he was doing. He said he was entitled to take these details. And I then queried why nobody else was was requested to provide their passports for a passport chat, as he mm. called it. He didn't answer me. Um, his colleague, the female guard, then advised me that they weren't immigration officers <clears throat> because I had asked them afterwards why they why were immigration officers writing down the details of an of Irish citizens. Mm. Um, they said they were second to the social welfare inspectors to the uh, department to the special investigations unit. And I asked them why they hadn't confirmed this before they requested my passport. Uh, she didn't reply. Um, we were then basically permitted to board. That was the end of it. Um, no stage was it indicated that I had committed an offence or why they requested my passport. Nothing like that. Um, it was. It, it was quite. Uh, I wouldn't say it wasn't that it was embarrassing, but it was. Uh, I, I thought it was um, uh, kind of aggressive to block. It sounds a bit intimidating. Yes, yeah. I, I I thought that I felt that if I didn't comply, um, I wouldn't be allowed board the flight. Mm. Now, bear, bearing in mind that uh, in in this country, when you leave an airport, you don't show your passport. Yeah. You know, unless you're traveling to America, I think there's American immigration officers in Dublin Airport and you would show them your, your credentials for pre-clearance. But mm. in general, there's only checks when you return. It, it just does, there's no passport checks when you leave Ireland. Um, okay. So, so you knew there was something a bit off about this whole thing. But I did. And, and another thing, Deirdre, that I mm. forgot to mention on Liveline is that uh, it, it slipped my mind yesterday, but... The, one of the uh, girls at the check-in desk uh, thanks me for uh, basically querying what they were doing. And she told me that uh, they were essentially there on a, on a weekly permanent basis on this particular route uh. since a, co- a couple of months before that. On the Checking. Romania flight? Yeah, to, to Bacow Airport. And I think she mentioned to Bucharest as well. Right. And, and that, that the, the the key thing is that they were checking. They weren't looking for anyone in particular. Yeah. They were checking everybody's uh, um, PPS numbers or asking for the, everybody for their PPS numbers. Okay, so every single person do. that was boarding a flight. But yeah, that, so you're about to say they can't do that, and you know because you're a social welfare lawyer. 
Well, that's that's the that's the area that I that I uh, worked in for years um, uh, in social welfare law. Mm-hmm. I've been involved in a lot of different uh, cases, um, and I'm quite familiar with how people on social welfare are treated sometimes um, uh, by the department. Um, so I would know uh, quite a bit about social welfare law, so I knew exactly uh, what what powers they were. Uh, purporting to exercise but as as I explained yesterday and it's been raised now by uh, I think Roisin Shorto uh, raised this in the Doyle yesterday um, I think Mark uh, Makshari as well mm. raised it um, uh, that the Act says that there has to be reasonable grounds to believe that a person who's being asked to provide these details uh, is contravening the Social Welfare Act, i.e. committing some sort of offence or fraud under the Act. So it's impossible for them to have reasonable grounds if they don't know the identity of the person that they're requesting this information from. And I heard Michal Martin and uh, Heather Humphreys uh, refuse, essentially, in the Doyle to accept that reasonable grounds are required. They just keep saying section 250, subsection 16, Mm -hmm. uh, they have these powers. Yes, they have powers. They do have the powers, but they can only exercise those powers when they have reasonable grounds. They can't operate blanket checkpoints in the Air Force. Okay, so for example, just to give people an illustration of that. So they know that Johnny is living at home on the dole for the last 30 years. He has a drug empire and he is driving three Range Rovers and he has a holiday home in Marbella. And they're going to try, then they follow Johnny to the airport and they know he's booked a flight. They go to the airport, they say, can I see your passport and your details to confirm that you are leaving the country? And they stop Johnny's dole because they know he's living off the proceeds of crime. Those are the kind of grounds that they need. Exactly. They would be fully entitled to exercise their powers in those circumstances um, and in many other circumstances. But as I said, uh, you know, reasonable grounds, uh, it could even be something, uh, a very minor suspicion. Mm-hmm. But in this case, there's no grounds, reasonable or otherwise. You're just another person in the queue. You're just another person in the queue. You could be anybody. You could be a celebrity. You could you could be someone on on social welfare. They've no idea who you are. Okay, and so you to could, be clear, you're not on social welfare. No, I'm not on. In social any welfare. case, so they couldn't take no. the pandemic unemployment payment off you because you're not on it. But what I happened when you no. got back? When I got back, um, basically, what happened was uh, on the first Tuesday of every month, uh, anyone who has a child gets child benefit. Every person in the state uh, gets child benefit, whether they work or they don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, my wife, it's obviously paid into her account. She's a mother. Um, and we noticed on the first Tuesday in this month that it didn't go in. And straight away, I knew what had happened. Um, I, I knew straight away that my details uh, have been used to find, uh, or my wife's details have been used to find her PPS number and the payment was cut. I knew that I even contacted them because there would be no other reason. Mm. So I phoned them up. I managed to speak to the deciding officer who uh, cut the payment. And she said that the reason the payment was cut because they... 
received uh, information from the Special Investigation Unit, which is part of the department, of their department, um, that I left the country or we left the country on the 13th uh, of June and that uh, that was the reason the payment was stopped and we received no notification, which they're required to do, didn't, uh, did never actually received even today a, re- a written reason uh, why the payment was uh, stopped. But we were asked to send in uh, our details, uh, our, fl- our flight, um, our booking, like to prove that we came back. Mm-hmm. And obviously, for the sake of getting the payment reinstated, I sent them uh, those details. I have the email, and then three days later, we got the same letter that everybody gets when they first are awarded child benefit, which is an awarding letter um, just printed off their system, basically, that says you've been awarded uh, this payment from this date and it'll be paid into your bank account. Um, So I have made a complaint to the department in relation to what happened. Uh, I've explained to them clearly that the checkpoints they're operating are unlawful, that uh, the information that was taken from us was unlawfully obtained. And I'm waiting to hear back from them. Uh, that complaint went in on the 7th of July. Mm. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how what changes between now and you getting an answer to that. Well, uh, I don't think that uh, I, I, I don't think that these checkpoints uh, will be able to continue anymore. Uh, I mean, they can keep just repeating uh, that they have these powers, that they, you know. But they, 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 I don't think that they'll be able to justify it anymore. Um, and I think if they get proper advice on us. Um, you know, anybody, any lawyer worth their salt will tell them that uh, they can't do that. Yeah. Okay. So, Roman, that's one of the issues. Thank you very much for that, Roman Shortall. No problem. That's one of the issues that has arisen now. So, basically, if you leave the country for any reason at all now, you are considered, the department considers that it has reasonable grounds to assume that you are leaving the country permanently and stop whatever payments you are entitled to that you are getting. So, this, we we heard about certain people on the pandemic unemployment payment um, they're now being told they can't leave the country at all even though it's always been a condition of social welfare that you can leave the, condi- the country for up to two weeks um, but they're now being told even though there's no legislative basis for this at all that they can't leave the country at all so bear in mind people like Roman's wife who had a dying relative um, that she wanted to visit and that the family wanted to visit in Romania um, I don't know about the COVID stats in Romania but I know some of the countries people are going to have lower COVID rates than us um, may or may not be on the green list that doesn't seem to come into it uh, I don't know where you stand if you were on the PUP and you travel to a green listed country um, it seems to be all over the place and there doesn't seem to be any legal basis really for any of it and of course the next thing now is that they made they changed the law last night in the Dáil quite unexpectedly to amend the law on the pandemic unemployment payment to include that you have to be genuinely seeking work if you are on it. Now the whole purpose of the pandemic unemployment payment we were told when it was set up was that you it maintained a link between employer and employee. It made that meant that 
if your workplace was closed because of the pandemic, that you were going to be able to go back to work the minute they reopened. You wouldn't be gone working somewhere else, so you wouldn't have had to find another income and that you would be able to um, go straight back in as soon as they were open. So today's the 29th of July. Pubs are supposed to be opening on the 10th of August, the ones that haven't opened yet. Lots and lots of people who works in, work in pubs are on the PUP. You couldn't take up any work other than that without losing your PUP. So most people I would imagine are waiting for that for their workplaces to reopen before they sign off it. Now however you A can't go abroad which you know that's a question of judgement but B you have to be genuinely looking for another job in order to keep your PUP even though your employer might want you back in two weeks time. Or if you're self-employed, how does that apply? You might have spent the last 20 years building up a business and now you are expected to go and get a job doing something else um, and not be able to resume your business, which might resume quite gradually. Steph is in that exact position. He's a sound engineer with 30 years experience. He's run some of the biggest events that have ever run in Ireland, things like Riverdance. Um, he has he has uh, provided the audio equipment for a lot of government press conferences in his time and other things like that. But now he's being told that he will lose the payment, which has gone from 350 to 203 if he doesn't go out and get a different job, even though his business is not gone. It's just in hibernation. Love to hear from anyone in a similar situation. Oh, eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. I read this letter that Steph wrote to the government this morning, and I have to say, I found it really, really powerful and striking. I won't list off his CV, but he has worked on every live event you've ever heard of. Um, Riverdance, Celtic Woman, The Gathering, Midlands Festival, Oxygen, Electric Picnic, like all of them, really, all the big ones. He's toured with every Irish musician you have ever heard of. He's worked for Metallica, uh, Justin Timberlake, Florence and the Machine. Like I'm reading, I'm reading the letter with all of, all of his um, concerts that he's ever done. I'm pretty sure I've been to every concert I've ever been to. Steph has probably been the sound engineer. Um, he's also provided audio for all of the um, last couple of Taoiseachs for Tishig, for the President, for foreign heads of state. But he says, since March the 13th, I, along with all of my colleagues in this industry, have been completely without work. Due to the COVID restrictions put in place by the government, I've also been unable to accept any work I may have been offered since March the 13th for fear of losing my COVID payment, which is currently my sole source of income. That COVID payment was also dropped from 350 per week to 203 per week four long weeks ago. My rent alone cost 16.40 per month, leaving me short 828 euro per month before I pay for electricity, gas, phone, internet, car payments, car insurance, car tax, loan repayments, child support and food. These are all expenses I had and was meeting before the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, however, I am falling drastically short because the government shuttered my industry. He writes on and discusses what will happen if people in his industry go out of business, how the C cost of concerts and how all of the events will go up hugely in price because everything will have to be brought in from mainland Europe or from the UK. Every time you need a, a sound rig, it'll have to be brought in from France or somewhere and you'll have to pay for it for three days instead of one. And he talks about his forming his own company and about all the work he has done to establish that. And he says, now imagine my surprise when I discover that while the government insists that I actively look for work while I am furloughed, if I accept so much as a day's paid work, I will be forfeiting my claim to the COVID payment going forward. 
Not only that, but if I leave the country to visit my family in Scotland to get a break from the financial kicking I'm taking here, I will forfeit my COVID payment going forward. In addition, it transpires that while myself and my three and a half thousand colleagues in the industry are suffering under this enormous financial burden, the government has decided to award itself a pay rise, bringing certain super junior ministers up to 140,000 per year with a pay rise of 16,000, which is funnily enough, nearly as much as my rent in a year. The lack of empathy, understanding and solidarity with the people of Ireland is astonishing. I've been put in a no-win scenario by this government. I want to work, but the government has passed legislation preventing me from doing my job. The government subsidy I receive for ceasing my work is woefully inadequate and does not keep me afloat, even at the higher rate. My freelance status prevents me from accessing any other government finances and because taking so much as a day's work disqualifies me from the COVID payment going forward, accepting work is currently impossible as my industry will not be back to capacity for literally years to come. I am facing the prospect of retraining into a new career where I will be up against people younger, more experienced and cheaper than I could afford to be. If you had to choose between a 47-year-old man with a family to provide for or a 20-year-old graduate with no financial commitments, which would you pick? The idea of making an effective transition into another career at this stage in life is simply not a realistic one. Steph, it's a very powerful letter and you're making it very, very clear here that you're not unemployed. Yeah, exactly. Um, thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, I really appreciate it. No problem. Uh, yeah, we're, we're not unemployed. Like all of, all of the people that work, or the majority of people that work in the, in the, the live events industry, um, are freelancers. We, we don't work for companies as such. We're brought in as, uh, contractors on events like Electric Picnic or, um, a gig in Croke Park or whatever it would be. Um, we, you know, we're we're contracted in for that job for those couple of days, that weekend, whatever it would be, and um, and so we're working for ourselves. Because of that, we are falling between the cracks of what the the government is is putting forward as the, the for the COVID payments and everything else. And uh, the freelance status stops us from being eligible for a lot of other benefits that that other people are, like rent allowance, for example. We we, we can't access that mm. uh, because we're self-employed. So um, yeah, it's it's really problematic, and and it's across the industry. Like every engineer that I'm talking to, um, every light and tech, every everybody in the industry that I'm talking to, are are all up against exactly the same problems. We we cannot access uh, what we need to access, and we are, as, as you say, we are not unemployed. We are being prevented from working in order to protect the public health. Nobody has an issue with that. Mm. We, we're we're absolutely fine with that. We 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 don't have an issue um, with uh, with with not holding electric picnic this year because um, social distancing can't be um, can't be maintained. Of course, it can't. That's fine. We understand that. But there's no reason for us to lose our homes over this, mm. and that is the problem. And uh, and and I'm seeing more and more of the people that I've worked with for years getting real close to that wall. And, uh, and it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, reading your letter about the amount that you are falling short, even just to pay your rent at the moment, is terrifying. Like, how long can you sustain that? <laughs> to be honest, not for long. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's one of those kind of crazy situations where you can then look at it and, and think, well, the, the timing really couldn't have been worse. Um, you know, between 2018 and 2019, I had a big upturn in business. And um, and things were looking really well, so uh, I, I invested in, in equipment 
that now I can't use because it's uh, you know I, I'm not going to be able to, to uh, bring a, a system to a, a festival for another two years. Mm. So that's sitting there depreciating in value. Um, the the uh, the loan that I took from the bank to to pay for that equipment obviously is not sitting on a shelf, so that has to be maintained. Um, with no income coming in, no rental income on that equipment coming in, storage costs for that equipment, of course, have to be paid for. So it, it puts you in an interesting position because really 2020 was supposed to be a massive year for for the entire industry, not just me. It was it was, it was going to be a very big year for everybody. And um, on you know right before Paddy's Day, which is when our industry really kicks in, the plug has been pulled and will not be put back in for at least another 12 months minimum. So you're kind of facing into the abyss really financially. Yeah, yeah, we really are. Um, you know, I have a, a four-year-old son who's starting school in uh, at the end of August. And, um, you know, I, I, that's a real concern. It's like, you know, how am I going to keep a keep a roof for him and, um, and, and be able to, you know, facilitate that when I can't work? And I can't even, if somebody calls me and says, hey, we're going to do one of the drive-in gigs, for example, that were cancelled last mm. week as well. But mm. if they were still going ahead and somebody calls, hey, we come and do, go and do monitors for Gavin James at one of these drive-in gigs, you know, for a day, I'd be like, brilliant. But then I'd get one day's pay and lose the COVID payment for the rest of the, the term, which for us is going to be until electric picnic for example can't come back and yeah. we're looking at 2022 before that happens it won't happen this year it definitely won't happen next year it will be 2022 if everything goes to plan and you get a vaccine and everything else goes to plan it will be 2022 before you see an event like electric picnic happening again in this country I know it's always been a problem for people who have sporadic work. Um, social welfare is always a challenge when your work is kind of come and go like that, when it's freelance based. But there's like in the normal dole, I get there's some bit of leeway for people in creative industries that you can you can claim something and you can kind of work it where you have the odd day's work. But with the PUP, you've been told that if you accept so much as one day's work, you're gone from it. Yeah, absolutely. And are you entitled um, to claim any other payment? Nothing else. Nothing, Nothing else. else. I got a, I got a, an email from a minister this morning uh, who read the letter that I, I sent out last night. Mm. And um, he said that I may be uh, eligible for some form of rent relief, but that will be means tested. And because I do have I have some savings mm. um, because my uh, I, I lost my uh, my mother last year. And uh, as a result of that, I, I you know, I, I, I got a little um, from the inheritance from that, yeah. which I was hoping to buy a house with uh, and put towards, you know, owning my first home. Um, that on its own is going to disqualify me from uh, the means test, I would imagine. Uh, so when, you know, when it's like, okay, you have these savings, that, that's probably going to disqualify me from that. Um, so, you know, that's the uh, the issue there. So at the moment, I'm just basically burning that money. Yeah. And watching that 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 uh, idea of owning a home just vanishing week to week to week, to be honest. Yeah, and Steph, as you say, it's not just you. There's a whole industry of people out there in this kind of a boat. Yeah, there is. There's like every single person that I'm talking to in my in my industry. Um, we're all in the same boat. We're all, um, you know, there's no roadmap from the government to say when we're going to go back to work or if we're going to go back to work. So we have no 
um, there's no way to plan anything. Mm. Um, we can't say, okay, well, maybe we'll do a tour in in March next year. Well, you don't know because the government aren't giving you anything to say that any venues will be open or social distancing will be at this level or venue capacity will be at this level, which will allow you to plan for a tour. Because you can't you can't plan an Irish tour unless you know how much you're going to make, and you can't know how much you're going to make unless you know how many people you can fit in each venue. So until we get clarification on that, nothing is happening in this industry whatsoever. When you're looking at this length of time before you are able to get back to something resembling normality, is there any kind of secondary thing that you could do? Um, I know certainly there's there's a couple of musicians in Cork who've got together because they all have vans and now they're operating a courier service. And it, that's not obviously what you're qualified at. It's not what you do. But is there is there any kind of other way for you to, to make things work? Because this just sounds like it sounds it sounds like it would drain all the life out of you. It, it kind of does, um, <laughs> to be honest. I, mean, I did have I did have a couple of thoughts on that, but I mean, to be honest with you, I, I graduated as a sound engineer mm-hmm. at nineteen. Yeah. Um, I've never done anything else than this. This is the only thing I'm qualified to do. Um, I could teach it, but um, what what student would go to a college to study a career that does not exist in this country? So. Um, you know, teaching it is pretty much out. Not that the colleges are open anyway, but it doesn't. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's you know, it doesn't it doesn't translate. This isn't a job that you can work from home. Yeah. Um. You know what I mean? This is this is a a, a job that I've spent a lot of years, um, you know, training myself to do and learning, and I still learn every day when I do this job. I you know I learn from other engineers and I, I learn on every job that I do. Um. You know. I've got to a certain level in this business. Um, yeah. Well, you're right. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously at a very high level with the, with the kind of gigs that you're doing. Steph, I'm really sorry. I wish I had more time with you because I think we have a lot more to discuss, but I, I have to go to an ad break. Um, we're going to come back to you when kind of we'll see how things develop with the payments and see what's happening because there do seem to be a lot of changes happening. Most of them at the current time appear to be a bit chaotic and a bit negative. Um, But hopefully something will, will, hopefully your letters will get through and we might see some changes to this. And we'll come back to you um, when when there are changes. Thanks, Steph, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Lots of your comments in relation to both Steph and to um, the Roman who we spoke to earlier about the pandemic unemployment payment, the new conditions that say that you can't travel when you're on it, but also the fact that it's been reduced and now you are supposed to be actively looking for work, even if your industry is closed down. Um, but I suppose a large part of the problem is that for some workers, their industry might come back in drips and drabs, but they're not allowed to accept work of that nature because they will be uh, they will lose their entitlement to the payment if they accept any paid work at all um, and that just doesn't work for people who are freelancer who run their own businesses on an events basis. You might have an event tomorrow that you get paid a thousand euro for and then not have another one for a month um, it, that's not a sustainable way to live when the industry is the way it is at the moment Anyhow we'll come back to that there's a few different texts and things coming in in relation to similar, um, similar issues and in relation to social welfare checks at airports. A lot of people do disagree with Roman's take on 
um, whether these should be done at airports and I suppose the legalities are one thing but whether or not you think they should be done at airports are a different thing. Do you think we should legalise social welfare checks, blanket social welfare checks at airports so that anyone is, one person here is suggesting that anyone who leaves the country such as in such as they do in Australia should lose all their social welfare benefits. Well we're in the EU Sean that doesn't that doesn't make sense um, like if your elderly parents are both pensioners and they go to Spain on holidays should they lose their pension um, or if you're a carer and you go away for a few days to London should you lose your carer's allowance I think the Australian system Australia is a really different country to Ireland for a lot of reasons um, but like for example all the Irish people that had to come home because even though they'd worked in Australia for years they weren't entitled to any social welfare because they weren't citizens um, we don't do that here and I think it's fairer that we don't do that here um, if people are here contributing they're entitled to get something back um, I don't know though people disagree on that 185715996 on another note entirely the the issue of direct provision is one that was really really heightened coming up to the election pre-pandemic it's something that everybody was talking about. It was a large part of the agenda in relation to the programme for government. The Greens went in on a platform of end direct provision. Sinn Féin would have had a similar platform and as we know of course Sinn Féin got pretty much one third of the vote. Um, There definitely was a swell in that direction. During the pandemic there was a lot of um, uncertainty about what was happening with direct provision, what um, provisions were being put in place for people who couldn't social distance because they were sharing bedrooms and of course the one that kept coming up all throughout was the Skellig Star Hotel in Carsarveen which became a hotbed of controversy because people from different direct provision centres were moved there to move into rooms together without being tested, without being checked. They weren't provided with any means of social distancing. They protested, as did the residents of Carhus Iveen. And there was all sorts of, of controversy about it. The minister, uh, Charlie Flanagan at the time, apologised to the people of Carhus Iveen, but never apologised to the residents who had, who had been put in danger of being infected. Um, they're still there. They haven't gone away. They're st- many of them are still in the Skellig Star. And according to what they and their representative group are saying the conditions are only getting worse. Rob O'Hanrahan is a journalist with Joe.ie. I'll speak to a resident of the Skellig Star in a moment. But Rob, you might just set the scene on this this protest. What's been happening in the last couple of weeks in the Skellig Star that has has led to this protest? Yeah, good morning, Deirdre. So this has been um, a saga and a controversy that's been running ever since the, the centre was opened in mid-March to allow for social distancing in, in line with pandemic guidelines. The latest flashpoint, I know you've outlined a couple of them there, we've mm. got a, a boil notice in Carhartt-Savine has been in place since the 9th of July and residents said that as a result of that their, their food and water is being rationed and they have only been receiving one litre of water per day. There was also on the 19th of July uh, a day where the water ran out. Now the Department of Justice has said that two litres is being provided per day. This is something that's being disputed by residents and the Department also said that water did run out on that evening of the, the 19th of July but it was replenished the following day and at no time were residents without access to safe drinking water. So 32 residents um, in the centre have gone on strike, on hunger strike since 10am yesterday. Um, now there are only 41 asylum seekers left in the Skelling Star from the 105 that were moved down in mid-March including seven children so that's the vast, vast majority of residents there um, and their demands are relatively simple. They want access to a social worker and they want to be transferred out of the Skellig Star, which is something they've been asking for since uh, April. One resident who spoke to me said, very simply, it's impossible for anyone traumatised by an environment to recover in the same environment from mm. mental breakdown. And also a very, very salient point, which is that just one person tested positive at a construction site, and that construction site was closed down immediately, whereas this cluster was upwards of 25 cases when it, when it was um, 
first brought to life back in April. And is the centre COVID free now? The centre is COVID free at the moment, uh, for, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the I think the main issue is that the, the situation hasn't changed. Um, yeah. the, the cluster that broke out resulted in Caritavine being the most word for this would be like the most COVID heavy uh, part of Kerry. So nothing has really changed. Yes, there are still less, there are less people there now than there was, but the residents would maintain that they are still having to eat in in communal settings, that uh, social distancing is still not entirely possible um, and they feel that they need to be moved out. Okay, now I'm going to speak to a resident in just a moment. So, in terms of that that um, that story, we'll hear that. In terms of what the department are saying, Rob, I gather that Roderick O'Gorman is coming under a lot of pressure um, to resolve this situation. But direct provision actually doesn't come under him yet. Not as of yet. Um, there is a there is expected to be a white paper brought to government by the end of this year, which will look to effectively end direct provision. And there is a commitment in the programme for the government to end the current system of direct provision in the lifetime of this government, however long that might be. So the Minister Roderick O'Gorman, who is now the Minister for Children's Disability, Equality and Integration, which will be tasked with ending direct provision, but at the moment, uh, direct provision still falls under the Minister for Justice and Equality. And I think one of the reasons why Minister O'Gorman has come under such a thing, criticism, is that in an email sent to residents on the 18th of May, residents of Skellig Star, which was a week into the government formation talk, he said to residents that, quote, I will continue to do all I can to highlight your situation and work to get you transferred to appropriate accommodation. I think residents are quite frustrated that now they feel that Minister O'Gorman is in a position to, to resolve this and is in a position to get them transferred out and maybe isn't fulfilling that promise that he made them back in early May. Okay, Rob O'Hanrahan from Joe.e, thank you for that, just to set the scene on the situation. Now I'm going to speak to Aswar Fuad, who is a resident at the Skellig Star. Good morning, Aswar. Good morning, uh, Aswar here. Hi, Aswar. How are you today? Are you, have you been on hunger strike since yesterday? Yes, from yesterday we are in hunger strike. Uh, we are okay today. Uh, we are continuing, now we entered the day two. Uh, so uh, we are waiting a fair response very soon. Uh, the hunger strike is still continuing. And how many of you are on hunger strike at the moment? We are uh, approximately, uh, we are 30 adults, uh, 41 out of 41. Uh, we have seven children and some people, some residents uh, who is going through uh, medications. Mm. Uh, so they have to eat the required meal. So out of that uh, balanced people, we are going in on an hunger strike, all adults. Wow, so everybody is in agreement on this, that this is necessary? Yes. And why are you so, um, I suppose, we we know the situation hasn't been good in the Skellig Star since day one. What has brought you to this impasse that you feel a hunger strike is the only solution? Yeah, that's what, as you said, uh, from day one, uh, the situation in Skellig Star is not good. This is uh, not uh, suitable and... uh, uh, we are not okay to stay in this kind of uh, environment. Uh, so uh, we have come across a very uh, bad uh, experience and uh, the environment here is not suitable for that. And uh, the place where this uh, hotel is located, uh, we also have many uh, uh, facilities lacking like social worker and uh, other psychological um, medical support. Uh, uh, we have we have issues. So with that continuation, we also had covid and yeah. uh, we faced to a very hard situation where we were inside the building for a long time. 
almost two months we were locked inside the building we are not able to go even though covid was found 25 covid was found the balanced people were kept inside the same building without removing the depression the pressure in our mind uh, how we were uh, we were going through that particular days each and every hour we are crossing with uh, 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 depression so that has uh, brought us to a, a level where uh, we are not normal now we have yeah. to go to a place where we can recover and we are we will not face the same problem again yeah. apart from that we have problem with refer to the uh, facilities like food uh, recent water issues so we don't want again to a place where we will face the same thing so if we need a place where we can uh, have all the uh, medical things access social worker access and also uh, we can uh, uh, prepare food for our own self and which the place should be which doesn't uh, if i get covid uh, it doesn't it shouldn't affect the another person mm. so here if one person get covid entire residents getting trouble and it is very difficult for us to face the community in case if third wave comes we will be the first person who is going to enter to the trouble because yeah. the same thing we told when we came here nobody listened to us but we proved with 25 numbers of covid 25 what, cases what word we told was not nice so same like that now when we say about third wave they might think it's uh, simple but when it comes they will realize again so yeah. do you want us to always feel like this so when 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 those people had covid as were there there were 25 residents in the center that had covid you were locked in the building with them Uh, 25 numbers uh, we got covid uh, by the time the hotel was having 56 rooms and all the rooms were with double two two people so 25 number when they got they removed one by one person but still we already mixed in the hotel and we the, the virus has gone entirely inside the building so entire 25 didn't come in one day okay. first one person came second one person came third you know and each and every time we told to remove the people if they have removed maybe it must have stopped with 4 or 10 Yeah. It must have not gone to 25. It must have been very frightening to be stuck there knowing that you were at risk of infection. Yes, uh, and up to now there is no any professional disinfection done. So right now no virus. We believe there is no virus, but we think why they didn't care. Yeah. Why they didn't worry, why they didn't take a react, um, uh, uh, quick uh, action for this. Yeah. So we urge the government to move to appropriate place. We don't say we want to go to this exact place, but we recommend two places which can give the facilities which we require. Yeah. Uh, in order to come out of this, we are in a trauma now. We need treatment for this trauma. The yeah. trauma, the recovery from here to changing to a different place, and giving us a fresh start would be the uh, ideal solution right now mm. as an immediate action. Can I ask where you were before the Skellig Stars bar were you in a different direct provision center uh, before Skellig Star uh, I was in a uh, emergency accommodation and in Dublin in Dublin so we came from three different emergency accommodation from Dublin to uh, the Castlewy in almost all total number of uh, group four group so we we uh, uh, highlighted from risk zone to non risk zone bringing uh, four different groups at a pandemic time the decision was very wrong and mm. this is going to end up with uh, definitely virus uh, spreading inside this uh, premises and yeah. 
of course we know uh, the the premises is uh, very much matching uh, in line with uh, spreading the virus. Yeah, because you were sharing rooms and, and had communal meal times and you're still having yes. communal meals. Uh, we, uh, after uh, like first phase of uh, like virus uh, started spreading, we started uh, collecting the food and uh, uh, eating in our rooms, but we have to collect in the same place. We are using the same common area. Even the children are moving around. Even though we know uh, the the uh, virus impact the children they don't know maybe they will spread the virus they will touch one place and they will go and touch another person and they will spread the virus we don't have any control on this yeah yeah it's very difficult as were I hope the um, I hope you get some kind of result from this it, how long are you prepared to go on with the hunger strike we have crossed now uh, like come to day two yeah so we are continuing further uh, in line with other medical things, we will uh, see uh, in which stage, what are the changes we have to uh, do in our uh, strategies. So we are continuing uh, further with the hunger strike until we get a immediate so transfer from here to the appropriate place where we have mentioned. Yeah. So government can do that one immediately and they can look after the other issues, closing down the centre or any other things later. Mm. This you is not the matter removed. of Kelixta business or this is not the matter of the uh, ending direct portion. This is a matter of giving us treatment from the trauma which we have gone through uh, by changing us to a, a better appropriate place. Okay. As we're, we'll catch up with you again and hopefully there will be some kind of a quick resolution to this before anybody has any um, any um, medical problems arising from it. As we're, Fouad, who's a resident at the Skellig Star Hotel and at the time when that was all happening, we were actually contacted. I know it's in Kerry, but a lot of Cork people, of course, have Kerry connections. We were contacted by a number of residents down in Carsivine, and it was funny because there was there was two totally different um, perspectives on it down there. There were campaigns running down there to, to close up the Skellig Star that it should never have happened. Um, some of them from the point of view they didn't want any refugees, and some of them from the point of view of um, they didn't think it was fair on the refugees. And that always seems to be the case with protests against direct provision centres. There's always two sides in those protests, um, and one side usually kind of doesn't want a whole pile to do with the other side um, but I know that there have been groups of residents down there similar to Milton Malby and Clare and of course in, in Mill Street here as well where the residents are very involved with um, the local local people and who the local people are supporting them but can you imagine at the beginning of this pandemic in March being told that you were being moved say if you're homeless being told that you were being moved from your emergency accommodation which wasn't ideal in the first place into a hotel with a load of other people who you would have to share rooms with strangers you would have to eat your meals with strangers at the same time when everyone was being told to stay at home in their own house and not to even let anyone into the house and that the people who were being all moved in together were coming from places where there had already been cases that just the whole thing beggars belief um, so we'll see what if there is any result oh and we have a caller who says if they don't like it they can go back to where they came from well they can't actually because they can't get flights to certain of those places and most of them are fleeing from war and persecution that's the definition of an asylum seeker um, but thank you for that insightful comment that wasn't even slightly predictable caller 1850 if you have anything intelligent to say Daniel is coming up next talking about his sister who is in disability services who currently can't access them. 083 396 96 96. 
This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Now, Daniel O'Mahony is the founder of the Silly Heads Mental Health Project. We've spoken to you on the show before. Morning, Daniel. Good morning, Dee. How are you? Not too bad at all. Um, I think we are not talking about the Silly Heads today, though. You're talking about a disability service that your sister attends. Yeah, that's correct, Dee. Um, so my sister, Rachel, um, attends uh, an adult day care centre here in Cork, and she has uh, obviously not been in attendance since March, I suppose, like everything else. Mm. Um, I suppose the issue at play here is clarity. Um, while the rest of the country is opening up, um, while the pubs and even the school, you know, we, we recently saw the uh, the roadmap, the 375 million support package for schools, the adult day centre services have got nothing. They've got no indication of when the services are going to open, uh, when the time frame, any time frame actually, when it's going to happen. And the, the problem is, you know, if we look at someone like my sister, they rely heavily on routine mm. and they rely heavily on structure, kind of knowing what's happening next. And if there's one thing that they need, it's clarity. It's it's knowing what's coming down the road. Because um, I'm sure you can appreciate it. It's, it's a bit different than, than speaking to, to myself or you. Um, so, again, we're, we're, we're kind of looking for answers from, from government and from management uh, who run the centre uh, and we're getting very little back. Um, in fact, we're getting nothing back at all. So, you know, we have to play it by year, basically. You know, every day we're kind of trying to get my sister uh, involved, ma- make sure she's active. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And it's having a huge toll on her mentally and emotionally and physically as well. Mm. This, uh, I suppose, this isn't a new story. We've spoken to a lot of people who have children attending different services, primarily not so many adult services, but the, the, it's the uncertainty is the worst part, isn't it? 
It's the uncertainty is is the worst part. The so you know, I mean, r- roughly there's about eighteen and a half thousand um, adults who attend day day services uh, across the country. Now, as of last week during leaders' questions, I think approximately there's about five hundred who were uh, going back. Now that is a huge amount left who don't know what's going on. And again, I, I'll reiterate: the issue is clarity. I mean, you know, we understand the situation with COVID and everyone has gone through such difficult times. Mm. But it seems, again, like the most vulnerable in our society are being are being left to last and yeah. cast aside. Like, you know, look, they, they'll be okay. We, we, we'll get to them at some point, which is not good enough. Yeah. Which is not good enough. You know, we, we seem to have an issue uh, at government level, uh, especially in the last couple of weeks, where we see people in vulnerable situations been absolutely, um, you know, left to the very last on whatever list they have. Um, and it's just not acceptable, you know, and it's not acceptable for obviously the, the people in the day centre. Um, and it's not acceptable for the families either, because we need to, you know, we're looking out for their well-being. I mentioned that she's um, she's starting to deteriorate. Um, it's very obvious that she's deteriorating emotionally uh, and physically. Her body language has dropped. Um, aggression and anger is playing a big part. Yeah. Um, and the carers, I have to, I have to say, the carers are doing absolutely a fantastic job because they're trying to do the best they can. You know, we get a, we get a couple of Zoom calls uh, a week. Uh, Rachel might be taken out for an hour or two. I mean, but that's that's nowhere near the level of routine and the level of um, of structure that she was used to. And I'm sure there's many other adults in her situation right up and down the country um, who are experiencing the same thing. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, as you say, like 18,000 is a huge number. And then you multiply mm. that by the family members who are looking after them. Um, who is looking after your sister at the moment, Daniel? Uh, well, at the moment, it's, it's my parents. Uh, it's, it's my mother and father. Um, I'm, I, I, have, I have my own family. I don't live too far away. So I get to go over most days uh, yeah. just to kind of check in, uh, see how things are going, see if there's any progression on, on the situation itself. Um, but you lose, you know, you start to lose hope after a while because yeah. you make the phone calls and you send the emails and you speak to other parents. And, uh, you know, when nobody gets anything back, you're really starting to kind of, you, you really start to feel very defeated, you know, as yeah. a family. Um, and then, of course, you're, you get very emotional about it. And that's very stressful for Rachel because she sees all that. Yeah. So it's just a very uncertain, uh, a very, um, I suppose, a very hard time for us at the moment, you know, yeah. um, just not knowing when, when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen at all. Yeah. And your parents, I mean, they must be getting on a little bit. Um, it must be difficult for them too. Yeah, it's, it's it's very difficult because, you know, they were they were they were very used to, um, you know, Rachel has come through, um, I suppose, the secondary school and then into the adult day services and it really started to kind of blossom. You know, she mm. was really um, getting on and becoming very independent. Um, and my parents would have been a big part of that, you know, so, you know, they, they would have been a very big part of her routine. Uh, from the moment she would have got up in the morning right to when she returned from the day service, which was, it's a Monday to Friday service. It's usually kind of nine to four. Um, So there was a a great routine there. And, you know, they'd worked very hard to kind of get Rachel into that position. And I suppose for all that kind of hard work to be pretty much, I suppose, taken out from under their feet so quickly um, was hard enough. Um, And I think they were coming to terms with that and were expecting some sort of framework or clarity um, 
you know, especially when we heard things about the schools reopening, which are fantastic and into phase three and all that kind of stuff as everything starts to open up. But when nothing was coming, um, they really started to kind of feel there was nowhere to turn. I mean, I know I, even today there's a, there's a protest on in Dublin at half 12. This is from the um, Enough is Enough group um, who are prote- protesting this exact situation um, at a national level. I mean, it's really starting to gather momentum, which is good. Um, but there is extreme frustration across the country, especially with, with families, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult for people, Daniel, who have brought somebody to this point and then to see them deteriorating. I know that Minister Anne Rabbit has said there may soon be some more clarity around the reopening mm-hmm. and capacity of disability day services in court. The Minister of State with Responsibility for Disabilities, Anne Rabbit, has announced that a new online portal with, which will detail the reopening dates and capacities for disability day services in Cork and around the country is being developed and all 966 disability day services around the country have been asked to inform the HSE about the reopening dates and the number of users able to access the service each day by this evening. Now, to be honest, to me, that looks like a grand big gesture. But at the same time, you're probably in touch with the day service anyway. You don't need an online portal to find out when it's reopening. They need to be told when they can reopen. Is that not the the problem? That's it, exactly. It's as simple as that. You know, I mean, it's not it's not rocket science here. I mean, you know, uh, every other industry and every and if if we take the schools, for example, um, you know, at least there's a framework in place and people can look at it and people can, um, you know, the teachers and, and et cetera, they can look and see is it viable. But when you when you don't even have that starting point, um, it's extremely difficult. And, and uh, yes, we are getting this kind of, um, these comments about, you know, there's something expected and there's something happening. I mean, really, the, the Minister for Children, Disability, Equality and Integration, Roger Gorman, I mean, I don't know why, why he's not taking responsibility for this and why, you know, junior minister is kind of taking this on. Um, I mean, that in itself is kind of... um well, this came up actually on the show the other day and um, they created that Junior Ministry for Disability in 2016 because mm-hmm. there was lobbying for it, for it to be the responsibility of one person because the the, right. the minister that used, it used to fall between a couple of different departments and no minister actually was fully responsible for it. So yeah. I think that's why there seems to be a new narrative that Roderick O'Gorman should be dealing with it. But actually for the last five years, the senior minister has not dealt with it. It's been the responsibility of the junior solely so that it got one person's attention. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the reason for that. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fair enough, and I, I, I'll, I'll hold my hands up. I, I didn't know that, but mm. even, even you know, if it's Roger O'Gorman or if it's if it's Anne Rabbit, I mean, the level of clarity and the level of work, the level yeah. of communication that's been passed out to the to their beneficiaries, the people, is not sufficient. Yeah. you know, um, I, I, you know, I suppose at this stage, you know, it, it's just very, very hard to understand how a framework um, for the most vulnerable in society has not been put in place. Um, and it, it takes things like this, you know, me having to come on the show and, and we have to get in contact and write letters and speak to the parents. I mean, it really shouldn't, it shouldn't be at that stage, mm-hmm. um, especially for the type of people that we're talking about. Um, you know, so I, again, I, 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 you know, I, I do hope that something comes very quickly. I don't expect it to because, I mean, if, if, if I have it right, I think politicians have their six-week break. I think that's starting tomorrow. Um, and time is run, running out. I mean, I don't know too much about politics, but, you know, if there's a six-week break, I would assume that, you know, the work is diluted and there's not a lot kind of, um, I suppose, you know, a lot of decisions being made quite mm, quickly. Yeah. So we are hoping, I mean, we're, we're talking 24 hours or something. I mean, 
I'm not I'm not hopeful, uh, to be honest. I don't think my family are hopeful. I think now we're kind of looking at trying to develop some sort of plan ourselves um, for Rachel, for her own mental well-being, um, to maybe create a new normal for her. But, I mean, you know, we're, we're not trained. We're not... Um, we haven't got any of the, the facilities or the tools needed to, to, to give her what she needs. Um, and very much her day service was a play, it was a central place of contact for her and her peers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was that simple. It was just a, a place that, that she felt very comfortable with. Uh, all her friends were there. There was great socialization happening. And now that's gone. So for us to replicate something like that um, is, is going to be virtually impossible, you know, because we can't obviously get... Um, with everything that's going on and everything, but it's very hard to get all our peers together. Of course. Um, uh, in the same kind of environment. Yeah. Um, and, and that alone is hard to kind of, um, I suppose, explain to Rachel. Um, and Rachel will take longer to adapt to, you know, these kind of situations, um, which is obviously not great for her and it, it's very hard for us to see, you know. Yeah, of course. And it is very difficult for people to watch. Daniel O'Manley, thanks very much for sharing that story with us. And hopefully that portal or whatever it is will provide some clarity. Mm-hmm. And um, and Rachel will be able to get back seeing her friends soon. I know for people, we, we've spoken to a number of people in this situation over the last week. And um, I know for people working in them, it must be very frustrating as well. Like the people who do kind of social care work really love their work. And they love looking after people. And they take pride in the progress that people make under their care and watching this level of people kind of backsliding and and deteriorating even over a video or whatever it must be very difficult and you know you're going back then to a much harder job when eventually you do go back um, I'd be interested in hearing from you if you work in one of those kind of jobs about how, how you anticipate the return 1850-715-996 Madeline one of the Debenham strikers has contacted us to say thanks to the people of Cork and the shops who supplied us with coffee Murphy's Chippers O'Flynn's Gourmet Sauce and Scoozy and to those who have visited our pickets with food and donations over the last 16 weeks and kept our morale going and especially the team at 96FM that's Madeline, Val and Jill on the picket line God love them it's very um, it's a long time to be there it's 111 days today God, girls, I hope I hope something happens for you soon. A uh, caller from Carsavine says there's been no public protest in Carsavine against the asylum seekers. All the protests have been in support to get them out of the DP centre. All the ones saying they're opposed are personal opinions and not the opinions of the whole community. Yeah, I suppose that's what I was saying. There's always a bit of... Um, there tends to be a bit of tension there because there's always certain people in the community who don't want the asylum seekers there and then there's people who want direct provision to end and that's a totally separate thing. Um they both have the same end of closing down the centre and, and dispersing people but at the same time they're coming from very different places um, and of course someone says put them out onto the streets for a few weeks like some of the Irish people are or send them back to where they came from should be happy with what they have for free and if we did put them out onto the streets for a while caller you'd be giving out about the homeless and saying we should round them up and put them up on an island or drown them or something so um, you know thanks for the compassionate comment um, Sinead is my next call and it's a really good story nice positive story to maybe give a bit of an antidote to some of the depressing stuff we've heard this morning. Stay tuned for that. Now, two women have become the first in Ireland to be legally recognised as parents and one of them has a court connection, Sinead Flynn Fogarty. Sinead, your, your late brother Brian Flynn was very well known to people in Cork from his work in the Opera House. Yeah, he was. He um, he was in Cork for a long time and I suppose he was resident director in the Opera House and um, he used to direct um, a lot of the pantos down there and uh, a lot of shows. He wrote his own musical called Michael Collins, the musical. Um, unfortunately, he passed away 
um, in 2014. But um, it, it, it was his it was his second home, if not his his first home. Absolutely, and he's very well remembered in Cork. I was at a lot of his shows and his pantos, an immense talent. But yeah, Janice, you need... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I just want to mention his um, his son, Ben, is still, Ben um, Flynn Warren. He's still in Cork, so just a little hello to him. And can I just say that we're not the, we weren't the first couple. We were one of the first couples. Okay. I just want to get that out there. I suppose the first couple probably in the, in the south, the southeast. Um, but, but we were the first um, couple in front of a judge. The rest were done on video link. So that's our, I suppose that's our little claim to fame. Okay. So Sonny is two and um, yourself and your your wife, Siobhan, is it? Um, yeah. Had Sonny two years ago and it's been two years, I suppose, kind of in legal limbo, has it? Yeah, we, he's going to be two now in August. And I suppose to kind of bring it back a little bit, um, it, it's five years really in the... Um, this whole thing in the making. Um, so we had the marriage equality referendum in 2015, but just mm-hmm. before that, um, the Children and Family Relationship Act, that was enacted in the April before that. And um, um, and it's been five years. Um, see, the marriage equality was kind of, uh, kind of under that act. Um, and I suppose when we got the marriage equality, although it was fantastic and it was amazing, um, for me it was one of the proudest days I've ever had mm-hmm. as an Irish person especially. Um, but... But I suppose I found out after that that there was still a lot of rights that we weren't um, that we didn't have. So it's only it took five years for this all to happen thanks to um, many people like Paula Fagan and Amory Whelan. These are people involved in the LGBT Ireland. Mm. They met with Minister um, Simon Harris and they really campaigned for this to happen. And it was to give same-sex parents equal rights and um, our case was last Wednesday and um, it's, it's go- there's going to be floods of people because there are many couples in our position and uh, we were one of the first so it's fantastic. So now your names are both on Sonny's birth cert. Of course you can't travel at the moment anyway so it's probably yeah. not totally relevant but had you had any difficulties I suppose since then? What was the situation? I, I, I think one person probably was on his birth cert previously was it? Yeah, just me. So um, when we had him, so I, I, I carried him, biologically I carried him, but we were both in this, um, we got married in January 19, 2019, but we had him in the August. So we planned him together. He's he's both there, you know, he's both there, or we, you know, we're her, his parents. But yeah. when we went to, when we went to get him registered in the birth cert, that was when we kind of met, met the first kind of roadblock. And we were told that Siobhan's name couldn't be on the birth cert. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, we were expecting it, but... Um, I suppose people in the registry office didn't, you know, they couldn't even see this in the future for us. Um, mm-hmm. They eventually agreed to let us put Siobhan's surname um, on his name. So he's Sonny Flynn Fogarty. I okay. took Siobhan's name as well. So um, so then when we had to get a passport form, I had to sign an affidavit to say that I'm a single parent, um, which I'm not. Um, all of these things, if, if we were to, when we got him his vaccines, I had to bring him. Siobhan couldn't take him on her own. All of these things these things that just were, were unfair. Yeah. So now what happens is that she's um, she's legally his parent just as much as I am, even though I carried him. And if something was to happen, um, our relationship tomorrow, if something happened to me, um, there's no, there's no um, you know, there's no misunderstanding there. She's his other parent. So we'll, we'll go to the, we only got the form actually in the post um, the other day. So we'll go to the registry office and we'll be able to put her name on it. So it's absolutely massive. 
Brilliant. Absolutely great news. Well done. And um, fair play to you for, for persevering and uh, enjoy the birthday celebrations. Um, two-year-old Thanks birthday celebrations tend to be a bit chaotic in my experience. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it though. Bring it on. Good. Well done. Congratulations. That's absolutely lovely story. Sinead Flynn Fogarty. So among the first um, couples in Ireland for whom, for same-sex couples, for whom both parents can be on the child's birth certificate and um, that obviously causes, um, I suppose it's a lot of reassurance for in such eventualities what happens to one of the parents or anything like that so absolutely lovely news I have lots of texts in about Daniel which I will come to in a moment we have another story this morning about a rescue um, Hugh Mochler is going to speak to me about something that happened in Crosshaven just off Roberts Cove I think in uh, I think it was yesterday and there was also a surf rescue over the last few days in East Cork just kind of actually they, I think these two locations are right across the harbour from each other there at the mouth of the harbour um, but I'll get a bit more detail detail on that in a moment but just highlighting the dangers of sea at the moment. Teenagers are having a great time out and about in the sea but there are a lot of dangers there and they just need to be um, very, very cautious of what they're doing, what kind of vessels they're using to get out to sea and that kind of thing. I'll talk to Hugh in just a moment. This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 Two men who floated out to sea on what's being described as a supermarket inflatable were saved after a former Oran Lye man picked them up on his trawler. Hugh Mochler from the Crosshaven Lifeboat is on the line now. Hi Hugh. Hi Deirdre, how are you doing? Not too bad at all Hugh, tell me what happened here. So basically what happened, I got a phone call um, from Angus O'Donovan, uh, the owner of the fishing boat, at about quarter to six yesterday evening. Uh, to tell me that he had picked up uh, two young chaps uh, from um, a supermarket inflatable about a mile south of uh, Daunt Boy, which is about a mile and a half off the coast. Um, so it was really um, a, a toy kayak of some sort. Oh, right. um, but they had lost uh, one of their paddles. And to be honest with you, even if they had both paddles, they wouldn't have had a hope of getting back to shore because the wind was coming off the shore and the tide was going out so they were being driven uh, southeast um so they were really haunted is the only word i can use yeah. um to be found and spotted by both um angus and uh, matthew on the fishing boat so these are two young lads who presumably were no these, they're adults i think they're over 18 um yeah. they were obviously kind of on the beach messing around with one of these inflatable kayaks and it just went out to sea? Like, did they have any kind of, of seafaring equipment with them? Unfortunately, no, they didn't. They were, I think they were, they were actually, actually at fishing rods and all. They were out fishing. Um, right. And I think they, to be honest with you, I think they were slightly oblivious to how, um, how dangerous the, uh, the situation was. Um, uh, because later last night, looking out at the water in the dark, I was saying to myself, my goodness, weren't they really lucky to be uh, spotted um, <clears throat> by the fishermen? Um, because they could, they could still be out there today, and uh, and and nobody, nobody would be able to find them. Yeah, because at the moment, actually, the traffic in and out of the harbour is not what it usually is. There, there aren't that many boats travelling. No, it's uh, certainly quieter, uh, quieter than usual uh, due to COVID. Um, going back to the guys being were they prepared? Yeah. I mean, one of the guys was was in shorts and a t-shirt. Um, the other chap uh, was in a tracksuit, so he was a bit warmer. 
But I mean, when the uh, when Angus picked him up um, on the fishing boat, both of them were definitely suffering from hypothermia. Um, and when he when he did bring them into the lightboat station in Crosshaven and the Iron Lake station in Crosshaven, he um, it took a long time for them to warm up. Yeah, and you're saying they were oblivious, like they just didn't realise that that they actually were in considerable danger there. Yeah, I think, and now to be fair to them, I think that both of them were suffering shock um, mm. as well, you know, uh, which is which is part of the hypothermia yeah. um, setting in on them. So uh, it took them a long time to really come back to, to to some form of reality. It's it's really the first time I've seen hypothermia take such uh, an effect. Uh, on 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 two strong uh, individuals, you know. Yeah, God, that sounds quite scary. Um, they they were kind of advised to get checked in hospital after the first responders treated them, but they declined. Yeah, so we uh, our our um, our doctor, um, our medical advisor in the station, um, we stayed with them. Um, I think we were with them for nearly an hour and a half, and uh, he wouldn't let them go until until their their, their temperature, uh, their core temperature, had risen to uh, thirty five. Um, and we did try to suggest that they take um, an ambulance uh, just in case that they make sure that they wouldn't get a secondary, what's called secondary hypothermia. Right. Um, um, but they insisted, no, that they were fine. So we just had to hang on to them for as long as we could. Yeah. Um, but, you know, look, we could be telling a, a far worse story this morning. Very the fact much that, so. we, that we're able to report that they were saved. Um, by Angus and, and Matthew on their trawler on the fishing boat really um, is a godsend. Um, I suppose the other thing that people should just be aware that you know, as far as those inflatables are concerned, you know, I think the safest place for them, and I don't want to be a killjoy, but the safest place for them is in the swimming pool. Yeah. And and even then, they should be monitored. Um, and like the guys, unfortunately, they had no life jackets. They had uh, no VHF. Um, they had a phone, but the phone I think was probably out of range. Uh, plus, the battery was low. Yeah. So we always advise people to, you know, have warm clothes, have a handheld VHF, uh, have a phone as a backup, um, but don't depend on it, um, and really stay away from those inflatables, especially at sea. Cheapers, that's a really cautionary tale. Thanks very much, Hugh Mochler, for that. And thank God they were rescued and spotted. Well done to Angus O'Donovan Absolutely. and his, his crew. Thank you for that. Indeed. That's um, that's very scary. And the fact that they were so oblivious, I swear to God, if I was one of their mothers. <laughs> like The fact that they went off out to sea, yeah, in an inflatable, but they were 2.5 kilometres out and they had no life jackets, no warm gear, no radio, no nothing. That is terrifying. Um, please, you know, God, you'd say to parents, keep an eye on them, but these are adults. Like, don't be an idiot. Just take the precautions. The sea is not your friend. Um, Luke Chambers from Swell Surf School. Luke, you had a rescue the other day as well. Yeah, how are you doing? Um, on Sunday, um, we were doing a lesson on the beach and I, I knew that the rips were just turning on at that time. Yeah. Um, and actually I was looking across to the rip and I was watching it and I'd already been across to the rip on the right hand side and told the man and his son to move out of the rip um, which I went over to them and they actually came out of the rip Yeah. I went back to my guys and then I looked to the right and I see three little heads <gasps> out past the reef um, so which kind of you know I was kind of got the shock of my life but I wasn't surprised in one sense Yeah. because it was literally like a conveyor belt over there yeah, just pulling them out into it. Straight out. Um, so just grabbed the board. I went to the, got my longest board and paddled out in the rip. 
and which you're out there in literally a minute less to them because it's you're flying out. Yeah. Um, so I saw the first kid. He was kind of uh, he was okay. He was in further, and the second guy was uh, kind of treading water. Who said to me he couldn't swim at the time? But I actually afterwards I he was saying he just couldn't swim against the rib anymore. Yeah. Um, I then realised I had to go to the third guy um, because he was in much kind of you know it was it was a worse situation. Um, and at the time when I was going out, I was expecting, I suppose in my head. I'm going, to ha- I'm going to have to kind of start doing some CPR here, getting ready for it. Luke, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to get the rest of the story after the news. Apologies. Yeah, I'm after time yeah, my break's yeah. really wrong. But yeah. three boys out in a riptide. Luke with one surfboard trying to rescue them. That sounds like, oh, it just sounds crazy. We'll hear the rest of that just after the news. This was an Inch Beach in East Cork, by the way, um, which I, d- I wasn't aware there were very bad riptides there, but now I am. Stay tuned for the rest of that. We'll be back with it shortly. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Before the news, I was speaking to Luke Chambers from Swell Surf School about a rescue he performed um, just over the weekend. Three young boys who were caught in a riptide at Inch Beach in County Cork. Luke joins, rejoins me back on the line. Hi, Luke. Hi, how are you doing? Sorry for the wait. I said, I, oh, no, rather, no, no. rather than finish, I said I wanted to get the full story. because So you were, you were going to the third boy on your surfboard. That's the point mm. at, at which we dropped the story. What happened then? Um, yeah, I was going to the third boy um, at that stage. I suppose I was kind of, I knew he was in trouble um, because when I was on my way out, I only saw two heads instead of three. So I, I presumed he'd gone under. Um, so I was coming over the trough of a wave, uh, coming to him, and I came down the other side of a wave and he was being held up by another man in the rip who was trying to do a cross-chest carry out of the rip to pull him out. Um I don't know where this guy came from. It was incredible because I hadn't seen him. Um, So I just got straight over to them and I can, the boy's name was Joey. I don't know if that's okay. I can name him. Yes, first name is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I just took the boy um, off or Joey off the man and we put him on the board and then I started paddling in with, uh, against the rip while trying to out of it first and then kind of in with Joey on the board. Um, then I had to get back to, I suppose, the second kid. And the kid, we were all washed up on the reef at this stage, which is on the right-hand side, the west side of the beach. Yeah. Um, being dragged along the reef with waves coming on top of us. So I suppose I was pulling the second boy. He was hanging onto my arm and I had Joey on the board. And the third guy had actually got in. He was standing there at that stage, inside. He was safe. Okay. So we, we, I knew there was this little gully at low tide where I could move in uh, in deep water and we got off the rocks and through that um, which we could avoid the rip so we got into the sand uh, I started giving out to the guys the two guys who were standing there you know because about the dangers of the rip yeah um, and you know having said that I, I you know I was I'm, I was prepared for it that day I'm prepared for it like I suppose all the time um, it's not just inch that has rips and there's two probably there's different beasts the sea yeah. is, is it can be the most beautiful place um, but it can be asleep which I say to my surface size class which is my women's class and my, my academy you know today you're looking at it it's absolutely flat calm it's beautiful the sun is shining <clears throat> tomorrow 
it'll be raging and it'll be awake. Yeah. You know, and that's the time you need to respect it. So the kids, like, were, like, you know, totally oblivious to what it was. But then I, I obviously had to, you know, I was looking at Joey and he was in a bad way. I knew he'd taken on water, so um, he was, you know, he was in trouble, I thought, in my head. Um, so he was on the ground, I picked him up, and I knew it could be fear of secondary drowning because he'd taken on a lot of water. Um, brought him up to the surf school, and we just rang the Coast Guard and the ambulance. Uh, but it, look, it was a tragedy that didn't happen, you know? Yeah. We'd be again like, well like you earlier. We'd be telling a very different story if you hadn't been there and and so known the beach yeah. so well and had your your I board. Yeah, um, but I was you know I'm I'm ready for that type of incident. The moment I set foot on the beach, not yeah. because of the beach, but because I'm aware of what a rip current is, and I suppose if anything, you know, this needs to kind of educate people on what the sea can do to you. Like, yeah. I mean, it's a great place. Like I heard the previous story inflatables you know I'd, I'd been since two weeks three weeks ago it's exactly the same thing people come down with their SUPs um, that they just bought yeah stand up paddle start, boards for, yeah. for the less Sorry, less informed yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and start paddling out to sea and the next minute there's an offshore breeze yeah they're gone you know uh, there's been numerous incidents and this is you know this is the time to educate about rips about what the wind does about what the swell does. Um, I'm not even talking about the incident that happened on Sunday. Um, I'm talking about in general, like yeah. uh, at any beach. Like in terms of the, the rips and stuff, obviously, um, like you're clearly very proficient. Um, you're a really strong swimmer. I presume you've life-saving qualifications and all that kind of stuff yeah. because of the nature of your work. But in a riptide, even a fairly confident mm. swimmer wouldn't be able to manage that, would they? Well, to be brutally honest, that day on Sunday, um, it was... You know, it was something like I hadn't seen in a long time. So what happened was the streams were, um, at, at, for some reason, it, it literally turned on 100%. So it was literally like a river and a conveyor belt just flying out on the right-hand side. Yeah. Um, it was low tide. And at low tide, the reef is exposed more. So then the rip goes around the reef and creates even more of a current. Nice. So... That was exceptional. Like Joey and his friends were probably in the wrong place at the wrong time at the, you know, literally the wrong time, the worst time uh, yeah. it yeah. could have been. Yeah. But I was in the right place at the right time. And that's, you know, and I knew, I suppose, what I was doing. But I would never, ever say anybody to anybody to go swim out in a rip to save somebody because it will take your life. Yeah. There's no way I would have been able to swim against that rip coming in. Um, the rip is running probably around 20 meters wide to swim out of that. Like... Wow you were in trouble. Like, yeah. um, so on a board, the only way you could have got those kids out was on a board rescue. Um, you know, there was no way otherwise. Like, That's was, a pretty scary thought. So if there had been somebody else there kind of trying to do the right thing, the whole the whole lot of them could have been gone. Yeah. Um, Luke, the other been, question, yeah. that man mm. that you mentioned, so there was another mm. man who rescued one of the kids and yeah. you've no idea who he was or where he came from or where he went. I have no idea. Um, I kind of, uh, I, when I came into the, the beach, I was more concerned with Joey. Um, I'd actually forgotten about the guy because we didn't even say anything to each other. Like, you know, yeah. give me the kid. There wasn't time or anything. Um, but then I kind of thought about him for a second and looked back and he was standing beside me. Right. And he just tapped me on the shoulder and I tapped him on the shoulder and then I went back to Joey. 
and I completely, you know, I was kind of um, getting, t- I needed to get Joey sorted. Yeah, you were immersed um, in what you were doing. Yeah, and then I have no idea where he went. Um, no idea. Didn't wow. see him again. He didn't come up to me. He didn't. But, you know, uh, if that guy wasn't there at that stage, you know, it was, you know, and, and Joey knows this and his mom. I met them yesterday. They're a cool family. His dad. Yeah. But if this, if, if, if he wasn't there, it would be a very, you know, very, very different, different story. story. I'd be coming into uh, a different situation. Yeah. You know. That's, God, if you're inclined to be superstitious, that's a kind of a, a really unusual um Oh, no, story, I mean, there, there was honestly, the, the even the lead up to this whole incident, like it started with my laptop breaking um, two weeks ago and us thinking because of the laptop breaking down that we had our class full that, that, that afternoon and we were turning everybody away. And it ended up, our class was tiny, which allowed me to go to the rips and get that father and son out and then keep my eyes on the rip to the right from then on in, you know? Wow. If I had a class full of children, not a hope. This wouldn't have happened, you know? I wouldn't have seen them. Uh, and, it, you know, it was just, it was meant to, I suppose, if this was meant to happen, and maybe it was meant to happen to get kind of a education on rip currents. You know, Inch, inch does have rips yeah. on the left and right. We've had incidents previously before. Um, you know, I've had incidents many times on inch. Um, it generally starts with parents coming down, letting the two children out into the sea. They'll read a book, they'll look up, and the kids are gone. Jesus. Yeah. Now, that's not even just inch. That's every beach. I've had many different incidents in Cork, even around the world, where there's been major incidents. It's, you know, a rip current is where there's an external force coming into the sea which generally, you know, on Inch and in many other beaches, it's it's um, a stream or a river. So all rivers lead to the sea. Yeah. And even now when it's raining, which it is now, or even it's raining the other night, lashing, you'll get the streams will fill up hugely with water. And then what that does, it flows to the sea. So I know the next day coming down, the next morning, if I'm teaching, I know that that rip is going to be much stronger and it'll be alive. You know, and... and also, when the rips come in, or sorry, when the tide comes in, it changes again. So the rip just doesn't stay in that position. It'll move. So it's just about, I suppose, education. And that's what I teach with um, my academies, my kids' camps, uh, my women's classes. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's what I highlight with them. The very first thing I say to them, you know, you need to understand rips. I call it RIP.ie. Yeah. You know, because it will take your life and... Um, it's great to be aware of the sea, but it's a beautiful place. Um, I've had some of my best times in my life in the sea, like, uh, but I'm aware and I respect it. Yeah, and that's the name of the game. Luke Chambers yeah. from Swell Surf School. Thank you for sharing that and well done. And thank God for all of that confluence of events that meant that you were there and able to do that rescue as yeah. you did. Um, that's an incredible story. And, and thank you for that. Let it be a cautionary tale to all of us, I suppose, going to the sea. Um, Luke knows that beach so well and he knows exactly what goes on there and he knows the conditions and he can anticipate them. And um, like it's like they say, you have to do 10,000 hours of 
something to be an expert in it. And, you know, those of us who go to the beach once a week or once a month or once a summer, um, we don't know what we're dealing with. And only somebody with that level of knowledge of a place knows exactly where the dangers are. So we just all have to be so careful. A caller says, this is an interesting one. In Ireland, they put up notices saying, beware riptides. Most people have no idea what that means. In a lot of other countries, like in the US and the UK, they put up descriptions of the dangers and little indicators of why some people are able to um, have their recreation safely. For example, skilled swimming perpendicular to the shore, if that's appropriate in the location. People see other people in the water and say, I'll be grand. Yeah, that's a very good point. And actually, while I was talking to Luke, I was thinking about it. Like the last few times I've been to beaches, I've been at lifeguarded beaches. It wouldn't always be... um, a lot of the smaller beaches around the Irish coastline are not lifeguarded and you kind of just paddle or you go in for a very brief dip or whatever. But And some people see swim, but they know the water. Um, but the, even the ones that are lifeguarded, it strikes me that a lot of those lifeguards are young kids and they that's an overwhelming amount of responsibility for a teenager with yeah a couple of years of, of skills and training and everything, but certainly not that level of years and years and years of knowledge and expertise and physical strength that Luke has and I just always wonder I look at those kids and my cousin was a lifeguard like I know loads of people have done it and go if actually anything happened to someone here would you be able to rescue them and I often kind of question that so even at a lifeguarded beach like you can't assume that you'll be re- that someone will be able to rescue you or your child. You have to make sure that you don't get into that level of danger. Morris says back in 1963 he was an inch and he saw a man being swept out to sea. I tried to catch the man. Two men from Middleton jumped in and swam out to him, but the struggle uh, was horrific due to the tides. Even getting the three of them back back into land was really difficult. It's always very dangerous with rip tides, and there should be warnings everywhere. Yeah, and between that now and the other story about the inflatable boat, you'd be terrified going anywhere, wouldn't you? Um, but just stay safe. Only go places where you know you kind of know the lie of the land um, or the water, and you um, you take all the necessary precautions just shows you can never really be too careful um, speaking of never being too careful with kids uh, something has been circulating online about uh, I've seen this pop up on my Facebook and a couple of people have atta- uh, contacted us on the show about the new RSE curriculums that's the new sex education curriculum among other things and all sorts of scare stories are circulating about this sex education and about what your children are going to be taught and the age they're going to be taught at and all that kind of thing. And I have to say some of the stuff that's being said about it is quite unpleasant and it's making quite unpleasant um I suppose links to certain people and certain um uh things, you know, cultures, I suppose maybe is the way of putting that. Um we have a fact check on it with Stephen McDermott from the journal.e next. What are your kids going to be taught in the new sexual health curriculum? If you've seen this one travelling around your social media, stay tuned. 1850 715 This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 0833 96 96 96. On Court's 96 FM. A series of claims posted on social media suggest that Irish children will be taught how to masturbate as part of a new sexual education curriculum from September. These claims, like a lot of other things on social media, don't seem to have a massive amount of grounding in reality. Do they, Stephen McDermott? Uh, Hi, Um, They don't really, but there's a very interesting thing that's going on here, which is there's a lot of conflation between 
reports about the new relig- relationship and sexual education programme um, that the Department of Education are devising and then other literature from the World Health Organization. So just for a bit of background, yeah. um, the uh, relationship and sexual education uh, curriculum has been uh, in primary and post-primary schools since 1996. So it's been around for a while and it hasn't been updated since then. So two years ago, Department of Education asked the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment to um, essentially come up with a new curriculum, one that was more grounded in you know, the challenges that teenagers and children face these days, so things like social media um, and kind of LGBTQ plus identities that maybe weren't as uh, um, um, open or um, anything like that back then. Um, so a final report on this was um, published by the National for, or Council for Curriculum and Assessment last year, but in between then there was kind of a study done by a couple of academics, and in this study, they referenced a World Health Organization paper from 2010. Now, people have taken this up since and looked at a different WHO document. So, so the one that is in the uh, uh, the, the kind of the paper is called uh, Developing Sexual Health Programs. So this is just basically like a document from the WHO that explains to different countries, you know, how they can implement uh, um, a framework that will improve their sexual health. Uh, you know, generally across society through things like laws and social policies or, you know, culture and economics and, and the way the health services work and things like that. And um, there's absolutely no reference to masturbation in that. There's no reference to the ages that children should be taught things. There's no um, reference to things like, you know, a, a contraceptive. Like it is, it is a very, very general overview. Um, so when people saw the year 2010, they saw the World Health Organization in this paper um, that was uh, put forth the Department of Education and they kind of obviously you know went out and sort of Google things and saw there's another World Health Organization paper from 2010 called Standards for Sexuality and Education or Standards for Sexuality Education in Europe now that was created in conjunction with Germany's Federal Health or Federal Centre for Health Education so that's you can imagine like it's kind of a, it's a it's a government you know uh, body or kind of task force within Germany like they were the ones who created and published it um, and it has a WHO stamp on it. Um, but, you know, this is one that kind of provides an overview of the sort of topics that European countries could provide mm. as part of sex education. So it's, it's, it's kind of a framework that's known as holistic sexuality education, which is, you know, in short, kind of teaching children about sort of the emotional and social interactive aspects of sexuality. Now, this one does contain the references to age groups um, and, and teaching, you know, children's things like uh, uh, you know, about contraception or, or uh, masturbation, but there's absolutely no indication that this approach is going to form any part of the new ORC curriculum. It's not mentioned in any of the literature being looked at by the Department of Education or, um, um, or the uh, NCCA or anyone like that. So, like I said, there's two kind of WHO papers out there. The one that is being referenced in these fake rumours or, you know, where these, you have these age groups and different claims is not part of what the Department of Education is planning. Okay, so people have basically um, put two and two together and made five. And is there any, I mean, this seems to me, Stephen, to feed into a bit of a narrative that is being circulated about different, um, I think particularly one minister in the new government people, there, there is, seems to be um, some forces on the internet that are particularly out to get one minister. Um, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago other things being circulated that were very defamatory towards that person. And um, this one would 
would, would fall under um, their remit as well, if I'm not mistaken. Is there any idea about where the source of this, where this is coming from? It's kind of like, it's actually hard to sort of trace it back to the root. Like we ourselves, when we were fact-checked, have found it on Facebook, but it was promoted last year by, um, um, you know, other websites and, uh, like you say, sort of um, uh, sort of fringe, you know, political groups. It's been the subject of recent protests in Dublin, but yeah. almost kind of as an ongoing thing. It predated the current government. Um, there was a local election candidate who ran in Galway last year who made, like, almost the exact same claim. Like, this, this, this kind of, you know, what, fear about what children will be taught as part of this new curriculum isn't it it's it's not anything new it is you know kind of being transposed um like you say to sort of link it to what like you say one minister in particular and uh to sort of you know um, and bash the new government that's there but like i say like it's it, it, it's kind of a bit older than that yeah so this one as, as you say those fringe political groups they 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 do tend to focus on and, and i suppose i don't really know if you could call it one group but it does seem to be the same sort of um what's the word it seems to um ebb and flow a little bit as a grouping depending on what the particular issue is but this is a group that we've seen protest against um uh the pandemic measures we've seen this group do this protest about um the kind of think of the children protest that was on a couple of weeks ago um campaigning basically against a lot of, of sort of um, progressive measures maybe that this government and the last government have been doing. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Like I, I guess I would describe them as maybe like a sort of, you know, a, a kind of you know, conglomerate of, uh, um, you know, sort of right-wing or conservative traditional views, you know, and, you know, I mean, for, you know, for people who are conservative, indeed, these people will, are on the much more extreme end of that, you know, things like, you know, anti-immigration or, you know, uh, uh, anti-gay marriage, um, uh, anti-abortion, you know, it's, it's all of these views that are kind of, you know, uh, 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 lined up together, but they, you know, their, their, their tactics are, are quite, um, you know, nasty. You mentioned the, you know, the new minister who was, you know, uh, sort of attacked there in recent weeks, um, mm. you know, you know, sort of based on his own, uh, you know, personal situation or his personal circumstances. You know, they, they, it seems that it's, it's not just about policy. It's, it's kind of very much about, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, Taking down sort of in you know individuals who were involved and stuff as well you know like um, like we saw with that minister. Yeah. Okay. So your children are not going to be taught about masturbation as part of the new RSC curriculum, and some of the stuff that's circulating online um, is not at all correct. If people want to go and find out about that new curriculum, Stephen, where where can they find out about that? The actual facts yeah, of it. You'll you'll find it on the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment website. Um, Probably, you know, it, it, it's kind of vague. It's almost, I, I don't want to discourage people from looking at it if they want to look at it, but it's almost, it's this big, long report and it's quite lengthy and it's not particularly, you know, thorough and it doesn't, I mean, this is, you know, part of the myth as well. It doesn't actually say what is going to be on the curriculum. The department is still at a stage where they're talking about what could be on the curriculum and there's going to be a public consultation, you know, talking to people like parents and uh, teachers and students and that. But if people want to have their say as well, they can get onto the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment website and uh, look it up there. Okay. Steve McDermott from the journal.ie. Thank you very much for that. And it's a great job that you're doing on the fact check. Um, you can look that up on the journal.ie as well if you're interested in finding out more. That's a, like, that sex education one is really insidious. I've seen it going around a good bit. Um, and it seems to imply that if you have LGBT ministers, they're going to be teaching your children all of these mad things. Things, um, against your will and that is not the case um, that RSE uh, programme came in I think the year before I finished primary school I remember an, a very embarrassed 
six class teacher trying to teach us various elements of it but I have to say we didn't get a whole pile of it um, and God the world has changed since 1996 when that was written um, there certainly was nothing about LGBT in it um, there certainly wasn't anything about safe sex in it um, you know and like six class children some of them are already engaging in sexual behaviour so that's if, if you don't get them at that age you're, you're probably not going to get them at all really if, if you don't um, teach them the very basics uh, what were your experiences of sex education in school was any use to you uh, I remember learning things in biology and I remember learning things in home ec but if I hadn't done either of those two predominantly female subjects I wouldn't have learned anything about it in secondary school either except for maybe the bit in religion uh, but obviously that wasn't much use either um, 1850-715-996 if you have any thoughts on sex education in schools now coming up next on the show I'm going to be speaking to a West Cork man who has found himself leading the response to the pandemic in Australia Dr Ian Norton is a medical coordinator of Respond Global uh, good morning Dr Norton Good morning, how are you? I, I'm not sure where in Australia you are or what time it is there. <laughs> it's about 8.30 at night. I'm up in Queensland uh, here in Australia. Okay, so you're not on lockdown anyway in Queensland? Not yet. Unfortunately, we just had a, um, a small outbreak occur in Brisbane. Uh, some people returning from Victoria, they didn't declare where they'd been and um, they'd been out in the community for the last week. And so we are a bit worried about that. There's been at least one case spread from those two who've just returned so uh, we're on tenterhooks here now God and Australia is traditionally so good at monitoring its borders it's kind of it was kind of a shock that it ended up there at all I remember at the beginning um, there was kind of no Covid in Australia and then it was one cruise ship that started off the whole thing It was unfortunately yes I was directly involved in trying to manage that after it happened uh, and to try and get the crew healthier on board there's about a thousand crew members on the Ruby Princess um, so I had to go down to, a, it was stationed just south of Sydney, do an assessment on it, see how bad it was, and then and then try and put in place a plan to uh, to make it safe enough to sail away. But that was our biggest outbreak at the time. Now we've had some returned international travellers into Victoria, and uh, we've been running at over 500 new cases a day down in Victoria, which has been our worst state so far now. Wow, that's that's quite a big number at this stage when kind of it looked for a while like it was contained. That that um, new outbreak in Victoria is it true that arose from a hotel where uh, where people were being quarantined and security guards sharing a lighter? Uh, well, we, we're still investigating exactly why there were several breaches. I think um, it was a question of whether they were trained in the right personal protective equipment, uh, some of their standards, and, and how they were managing. Um, but yeah, certainly that's caused, a, a, I suppose, a tightening across other states as well. Uh, we're really trying to get on top of this. I mean, it's important for people to, to still have emergency international travel, but uh, when they arrive, they need to be looked after correctly. And, and also it's part of you know, encouraging people who are, who are in this situation, the two weeks inside, to, to understand why the rules are in place and to get them to comply as well. Because, uh, you know, their mental health as well as their physical health is important. Yeah, because I know in Australia now you have this, like it's quite a strict quarantine that people who come into the country have to, are, are they all kind of staying in in um, state-run hotels and things like that for the two weeks? They are, they are, but mm. uh, it's just changed now recently in the last week or two. Uh, now people have to pay for their own hotel accommodation. In the beginning it was, it was free, it was yeah. provided by the states. Um, and now we're seeing the same control applied, let's say here in Queensland, if you want to come in from 
from Sydney now as of Saturday, you're going to have to go into two weeks mandatory uh, quarantine in a hotel at your own cost to, get to enter Queensland. So things are really tightening up between Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland and between those states. And then over in WA, West Australia and South Australia and others, they've completely shut their borders to the other states as well. So it, it is an interesting mix. You know, it's not just one big country. It's eight states and territories, all with slightly different governments in each. Yeah, and it's from the Irish perspective, I suppose, we look at that kind of a gog because we're, you know, an island nation. In theory, we should have been able to, to manage our borders. But of course, because we're a member of the EU, because we share a land border with a now soon-to-be non-EU state, um, our border situation is a mess and we can't prevent people coming in, it seems, legally. But what are your views on the, the Irish advice about quarantining? At the moment it's just restrict your movements for two weeks but people can still go to the shop. The follow up on whether they do or don't restrict their movements is is limited enough. Um, is is it enough to keep this virus out? Well I think uh, yeah, if, if they're coming from a place that has a similar uh, community spread as Ireland now which is well controlled and, and you're in quite good shape now uh, if you're coming from a country of about the same risk, then I think that's fair. If you're if you're bringing in people from a high-risk country where the spread is really uncontained, US is an example, Brazil, mm. India, and a few other countries, then I think you yeah you do need to not just take people's word for it, but uh, but actually door knock and, and and call them up and make sure they are where they said they would be. We certainly are doing that here. Some spot checks to make sure that when we ask people to home isolate, if that's still the case in some places, that is, uh, it also involves a, a checkup. So we're. <laughs> It's not great to militarize the situation, but in Victoria, because of the, the lack of health care personnel now and, and so many people themselves infected, uh, the, the military are now doing some random checks as well and just knocking on the door. And if, if the person who should have been home isolating because they are positive uh, isn't there, then the police are, are informed and the police then take the next steps. Wow, that's a little bit full on, isn't it? For somebody yeah. who didn't grow up in Australia, um, like you're from West Cork originally, is that a bit alien? Yeah. It, it, it is strange. I mean, I've put myself back in West Africa and Ebola and you saw different approaches in different countries. The way Liberia, you had a president there. She was just amazing and trying to bring everybody along. And, and it was all about, you know, that we're in it together. Uh, let's, as a community, manage this. Whereas yeah. in Sierra Leone, which had a different approach, they militarized. The, the public health ministry lost sort of control of it. The military stepped in. And then they were checking temperatures with armed guards door to door. And that really wasn't the way to approach a public health response. I fully agree. And uh, yeah, you can imagine that wouldn't work in West Cork, that's for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so from your experience managing Ebola, um, I suppose it, like, you can't really compare them directly, but what are what are the, the differences between Ebola and this virus in terms of the public health response? And I suppose the fact that the, you're dealing with first world countries. I mean, I can't imagine too many people in, in uh, an Anglo first, first world country like ourselves or Australia or Britain dealing very well with the police taking their temperature under arm guard. Yes, for, for sure. I mean, it, it, the same lessons should be applied in both, which is uh, you need to be consistent in your messaging, but also truthful and and really, I suppose, spend some time explaining to everybody and the general public why the rules are in place and how this thing is spread. So sometimes I find, you know, even in our public health system, we don't do a great job of explaining and demystifying and just making it easy for people to understand. Um, and when there's, you know, the rise of social media and other contra arguments or you know quite you know squeaky wheels as it were they make a lot of noise but there's not a lot of substance behind they seem to get a lot more traction but certainly in this day and age 
uh, I was really disappointed. I mean, I must say it's, it's hard to say this now, but uh, disappointed with what happened in the U.S. and how mm. uh, public health was then undermined by other branches of government, and that that's really that's really difficult. Um, and you only get one chance to get a message across, and then if you start to lose trust, then it's very hard to regain it. Yeah, absolutely. You're from West Cork originally. When's the last time you were at home? Oh, I was at home for Christmas. We had a great time in West Cork and then uh, meeting up with some friends from college up out in the, in the Twelve Bends and doing some climbing around in Galway, in Connemara. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we just moved back to Australia where my wife is from uh, to set up this new new entity, this new business. But uh, up to then, we were based in Geneva, so uh, working for the WHO and we're back and forth to West Cork as often as possible. Okay, so at least you've that memory to sustain you because it could be quite a while before you get home again. It is. It's going to be tough, uh, and that is that is yeah. That's uh, that's something we we don't enjoy being sixteen thousand kilometres away. That's the that's the hard part of it. Uh, certainly, uh, chatting as often as possible to mum and dad based in the League there in West Cork, and um, and then um, uh, you know my sister and brother-in-law and the kids are, are in the Kinsale, and uh, and then uh, further up uh, a brother in, in Wicklow and his family. So it, it's good to be in contact. But I've been watching carefully, watching how you've gone and. Uh, you know, trying to trying to help as much as we can from over here. Well, fair play. Keep up the good work, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, those outbreaks will be contained soon. Because it's my best friend's birthday tomorrow, and I couldn't send her a present. She's in lockdown in Melbourne. There's no post oh, going yeah. to Australia, <laughs> so um, hopefully, things will improve a bit there. And it's nice to hear an, an external view. I suppose that things are going reasonably well here, because I think uh, you're talking about messaging being consistent and that kind of thing. The government in the last few days or the last couple of weeks, the, the wheels have come off a little bit. I think in terms of communications, but um, the the statistics are good. Uh, Dr Ian Norton uh, who works with Respond Global in Australia thank you very much for taking the call this morning My pleasure Thank you uh, or this evening as it is in his time So yeah like it's a good thing to hear that um, that from from that perspective we're doing reasonably well and we don't have armed police checking people's temperatures or checking up on people who are supposed to be quarantining and, and taking police action if they're not Um and I think maybe there's an aspect of people being good citizens and kind of doing what they're told so that we don't have to go to those measures. Um, interested to know what you think about that. 0833 96 96 96. Isn't it incredible? Dr. Dr. Norton there had worked for the WHO in Geneva. We've Dr. Mike Ryan up at the very top of the WHO directing operations worldwide. There seems to be um, an awful lot of Irish medical personnel really at the heart of this and, and dealing with it worldwide. And I think that's a, a fair source of of some pride nationally. I think that we're we're entitled to give ourselves a pat on the back for how well trained and how um, how prestigious I suppose some of our medical personnel are. But difficult to be so far from home. Anyone else who has people in Australia might have noticed that about the post as well. And it'll be a long, long time I think before flights people will be able to fly home for out of Australia um, to see their families. So and there's a lot of people listening who will have family in that boat. Now next up, Craig Kelly is going to tell me a little bit about his situation. He's written an article for Noteworthy in which he describes being in the position of having a disability and not being able to work. 1850 715 This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Call us now 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM 
Craig Kelly joins me on the line. Craig, you've written this piece for Noteworthy, which is part of the journal.ie, about how the pandemic is going to make it harder for everyone who is trying to find a job, but particularly people with disabilities. Tell, tell me a bit about the piece you wrote. Um, yeah, good morning, first of all. Um, the piece I wrote about is about, like, people that have disabilities or abil- different abilities that want to work, but there's not a lot of companies or small businesses out there. And especially with the pandemic, businesses are closing, there's fewer staff going to be on. But when it's all over, eventually, hopefully, uh, there will be different competition for us because other people will be out there, say, with like more skills. And for us, we're always left behind. We're always last to be talked about, as it was said a while ago. Um, I don't think it's completely fair. Not a lot of us have um, a lot of people that would help us, but some of us have job coaches that help us with online, um, you know, trying to get jobs and stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean, up until the pandemic, Craig, were you um, were you in employment or had you been finding it difficult? Um, before the pandemic, um, I was finding it difficult, but my job coach helped me and I was employed before the pandemic. But because of it, I I left for a while, but I'm hoping to go back after the pandemic passes. OK, and is it the kind of job where, where it's not available to you at the moment because of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, yeah at the moment. That's a very difficult situation. I spoke earlier to somebody um, who is also in, in an industry which is shut down at the moment and, and kind of getting very discouraged. You write in your piece, Craig, about your experience of going for interviews and your disability, I suppose, not directly coming up, but people becoming aware that you have a disability. Um, how How is the reaction when people do become aware that you have? Because it's a hidden disability that you have. They can't see it when you walk in the door. Yeah. So a lot of people, when they see me, they think that like, oh, he's perfect. But in in real time, like nobody's perfect. Yeah. So before, when I before I tell them that I have an invisible disability, they're fine about it. But when I tell them, their like faces drop. Some of them, some of them don't. And for one interview that I went to, I won't mention it because I don't want to pull anyone out of anywhere. Yeah. But um. It was a really bad interview. It was going well until they asked. And I told them because I'm not going to hide who I am. Yeah. Because I'm happy with it. And their faces just dropped completely. And it kind of upset me. I didn't think that I could be able to do another interview. Um, especially if there's more than one person in the interview interviewing me. Yeah. Then it's because it's, I get really bad anxiety. So it's kind of hard, you know. Yeah. And at the best of times, a job interview, even if you don't suffer any anxiety and you have no kind of uh, stumbling blocks, I suppose, like that, a job interview is difficult. Like, it's 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 a stressful process at the best of times. But for you, you feel that, that the minute they know that there is something, that that's it, you're gone off the list. Yeah, completely, straight away. You can tell by their facial expressions and their figure of speech and how they talk to you and look at you. You'll see, you'll see it straight away. Like, and, you know, I think... Not just me, but other people that have a lot of other abilities. This happens to them too. And yeah. I don't think that we're recognised as much. And we don't see in job adverts as well yeah. that all people with abilities of all kinds are welcome to work here. I think it, sh- it should be recognised. It should be the law. It should be in ads. Um, I think there should be a campaign about it. I think, you know, 
Yeah, like I suppose they do put um, we're an equal opportunities employer usually on the ads. Would that be, you know, is that sufficient or do you think that's just kind of covering a legal base? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Like, all I, I just think that we should be recognised as much as other people are, mm. you know? And like it was, I suppose, not with, without going into your private business, the, the, your, your issue, whatever it is, was that in any way relevant to the particular job? Like, was it going to prevent you from doing the job? Um, not really, not as much, but there is times in the job that I do find hard or I might find it hard to understand. So I need help with this. Like, you know, I mightn't understand how to do a certain thing if they told me once, so I'd need to be told or shown a few times. Yeah. You know? And also, with the with the recovery money that the county or the Ireland got for people going back to work, Yeah, we were left behind in that as well. There was no mention of uh, people with abilities getting back to work. That's a good point, actually, it wasn't. And Craig, you're the first president of the Ability Board, which was established in March 2020 uh, by Ability at Work, which is run by the Cope Foundation. So this isn't the last we'll be hearing from you, I'd say. Uh, definitely not, anyway. Great stuff. OK, Craig Kelly, well, best of luck with the job hunt and hopefully something will come up for you in time and uh, and we'll all, I suppose, we'll all be able to get back to work no, as in a normal way. Um, but people with disabilities obviously have that extra roadblock ahead of them and God knows there's enough roadblocks ahead of everyone at the moment. We spoke recently actually to um, Eddie Hennessy, the photographer, about this issue uh, who was talking about entrepreneurs with a disability and very much um, a similar story, unfortunately. Now, to take a quick break, but after that, uh, a brief call with Councillor Sean O'Donovan, a kind of an unusual one. We all know you're not supposed to throw rubbish out of the car. Obviously, you know, you don't do that. But there's more reasons than just for, um, you know, the sake of, of the place looking nice and littering and that. They, it can pose a huge danger to certain animals in a way that you might not expect. I'll be talking to Sean O'Donovan about that in a moment. This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 On Court's 96FM. I saw a picture yesterday evening on Facebook of cows. Um, in, I think, milking parlour in their shed. And one of the cows bleeding quite profusely from the nose. Councillor Sean O'Donovan is the person who put up that picture. Sean, what had happened to the cow? Um, I suppose uh, we all know littering problems around the countryside, but people throw cans of beer or soft drinks or whatever. And when they throw them into a field, the machine comes along, it cuts the hay, cuts the silage, whatever, and it, it gets put into the, the animal feed and then, like, cows don't chew everything they put in their mouth. They swallow, uh, basically, so they can swallow this, these cans and they cut their insides. Uh, it, it's very serious, actually. It's um, it's a, a problem that can kill the cattle, you know. Their yeah. organs become irritated and inflamed and, and it, it, it can pierce their heart so the animal can actually die from it, you know. So um, I think people just need to be aware of, of when they're trying cans and stuff out on the road, which yeah. they shouldn't be doing anyway, you know. There's a long a long-term effect and expense for farmers and, and maybe the death of a, a cow or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, and how is the animal now? That was a picture of one of your own animals, was it? No, it wasn't, no. It's, okay. it's um, a constituent that made me aware. Um, the animal's okay. 
had um, uh, treatment from um, a vet and all the rest of it. But I suppose I just put it up to highlight the fact that um, I certainly wasn't aware of. I suppose it's something that now that when I heard it, it makes sense. But I wasn't actually aware of it before now, you know. Yeah, um, same there. here. I'd, I'd never heard of this problem before. And yeah. obviously we know not to throw things out the window of the car, but people obviously do it. People but this do, is yeah. a really serious thing. This is beyond something looking bad. It, it actually could kill an animal. Absolutely, yeah. Um, a study there in the University of, of Missouri found that 65% of the cattle slaughtered had some some, some form of hardware in their stomachs when, when they were slaughtered, you know, so um, like metal cans or like nails or, or bits of wire and stuff, you know, so I think people just need to be extra cautious. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.